Well, good evening. It's great to have this chance to share with you a little bit of God's Word. And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts together uh, over the weekend. And we're going to begin with that passage we had read to us uh, earlier, just a moment ago, from Acts chapter 1. And our theme tonight is confidence in Christ. How we can be confident in Christ. And the theme verse is verse 3 where we read that he, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them, that's his disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Many proofs that Jesus is alive. So we can be very confident. But in a lot of ways today, it seems hard to be confident. You look at surveys of younger people's opinions, about uh, Christianity and it seems that so many of them uh, lack a confidence that it has truth. We perhaps moved over time in society from a time when it was fairly easy to get permission to uh, do evangelism outside to a time when now uh, we see open air preachers uh, being arrested and so on. We moved from a time when perhaps we felt that there was very much an alignment between the laws of our land and what we understood to be the teaching of the Bible. And we've seen that change. And very much it's easy at this time for us, Bible-believing Christians, to feel on the back foot. And yet we have this book which is written to give Theophilus, the person it's dedicated to, confidence. How can we know that? Well, it was good to turn back to the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, because, of course, Acts is volume two of Luke, and Luke's Gospel begins like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it's saying good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the purpose of Luke writing his gospel for Theophilus, and of course writing for others at the same time, was so that Theophilus can benefit. He's been taught the Christian faith, and so he can have certainty about it. And Acts is continuing the same thing. It's important for us to be certain so that we can go out and tell others about Christ. And the reason we're given here in Acts to be so certain about Christ is the resurrection, which is an amazing uh, evidence of who Christ is. Now, how can we be sure about the resurrection? Well, Acts often talks about the resurrection. It's right at the centre of the preaching of the apostles. So let's look at a few more verses in Acts about the resurrection. One of them is Acts... I hope you've all got your Bibles there, and if you get one of those electronic devices out, that's fine. If you're not checking your emails, you really are uh, checking your Bible. And... Here we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 31. And this is where Paul explains. Verse 30. God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now witnesses to the people. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 you learn about how people who had followed Jesus had seen him risen from the dead over a long period and they became witnesses. Here again, it talks about how people had seen him over many days. The people who had been witnesses, actually, uh, essentially, 
came from Galilee. Sometimes we don't always notice. Then we're going to have a look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 31. Another thing where it talks about the witnesses to the resurrection. This is where Peter's talking to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And he says, four days ago, verse 30, about this hour I was praying in my house at the night hour, and behold, a man uh, uh, stood before me in bright clothing. And you know, that's the wrong verse. So let's go to 11. Uh, I know, 1041. That's what, not 31, sorry. Okay, where he talks um, uh, about how God raised him from the dead and made him appear, not to all of the people, but to us who have been chosen by God, as witnesses, we who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, a couple of things to notice there. Firstly, God didn't maximise the number of people who saw the resurrection. He clearly could have had uh, Jesus appear to more people than he did. Now, 500 that you read about in 1 Corinthians is quite a lot. He could have shown to more, but why didn't he? We'll look at that uh, a little bit later. But the key thing I want you to notice from Acts chapter 10, verse 41, is how it talks about these people who ate and drank with him. Not just once. This was a repeated thing. Now, when we think just about the resurrection appearances, we see what grounds we have for confidence. Because this is not just someone seeing someone at a distance. Of course, the resurrection appearances do sometimes see Jesus at distance, but they also see him close up and they move in between. And Jesus appears to groups of between two and five hundred. He appears to individuals, he appears to groups of men, groups of women. He appears in the morning and in the evening. He appears by prior appointment, uh, Matthew 28, and without prior appointment, uh, Luke 24. He appears standing, sitting, walking, always talking. He appears in Galilee and in Judea. He appears in the town, in the countryside. He appears up a mountain and by a lake. There's a huge variety here. This is not just one particular camera angle where people hallucinate and see Jesus and they're having meals with him. Now, we might sometimes have optical illusions, but I've never had an optical illusion about someone I had a meal with. I mean, as, as in, you know, imagine I have a meal with them, or more than one meal, and then I didn't. And, and to have lots of people. You know, people will say, well, could it be mass hallucination? Just think about a group of people sitting around in a room taking drugs, hallucinating. Do they all see the same thing, do you think? Yeah, I see a pink elephant. Yeah, I see one too, man. You know, it's not like there isn't such a thing as mass hallucination. When people have hallucinations, they see they have different pictures in their heads, Right? So you can't explain it that way. So that's one angle you can look at the evidence for the resurrection. But of course, there's another completely different angle, and that's the empty tomb. Now, it's a good, you'd have to do a lot of work to have all of these different people go around saying that they really had seen Jesus close up. You'd have to have a lot of liars. Or what else, how else are you going to do it? But you've also got the fact that the body's gone now. If it were just the body gone and the empty tube on its own, that wouldn't say very much. People can take bodies away, although why they would lump a body away, I mean, you know, there are logistical problems there, but let's imagine we could do that. But you can't explain a few people stealing a body and then a ton of people saying that they've seen Jesus risen from the dead. So those two things together make such a strong case for the resurrection. But we can actually come in from another angle which is the resurrection seems to be something that is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Take something like Isaiah 53, 
which talks about uh, one who's going to rescue Israel, dying on behalf of the people of Israel, and, and it's talking about him dying, and it uses four different phrases that imply dying, like cut off from the land of the living, or having a grave, and so on. doesn't seem to just be speaking in imagery. And then it says, after his suffering, he'll see the light of life. So, you know, there's sort of like death first, then life afterwards. And there are things like that in the Old Testament that speak about resurrection. So we've got the empty tomb, and then we've got, we've got the resurrection appearances, and then we've got prophecy. And all of that looks pretty amazing as an argument for the resurrection, but it's not all that we've got. Because, in fact, we've got all of that didn't just happen to Joe Bloggs. It happened to Jesus Christ. That is someone who, independent of claims of resurrection about him, was already remarkable. He was already being followed by many people, already widely believed to have performed miracles, already had followers, already was seen to be the fulfilment of the promises of Israel. So it's not just to someone random, it's actually to someone very special. And even from a very secular point of view, Secular people have to admit that Jesus was pretty remarkable. Take something like the golden rule. That, that whatever you'd have others do to you, that you do to them. That is more clearly put than any previous teacher, rabbi, had ever put it. Confucius said, if you don't want others to harm you, don't harm them. Sort of putting it negatively. Well, that's not quite so impressive. So, you know, even secularists realise that Jesus has said many things that are remarkable. Now, some people say, how do we know Jesus said them? Okay, let's, let's take the doubt, doubters' uh, thought seriously there. Well, either he said all these remarkable things, or he was really lucky to have great disciples to come up with great ideas and then attribute him to the, the, them to him. I mean, take the, the parable of the prodigal son. What an amazing story. Wouldn't it be really smart if someone made it up and then attributed it to Jesus? I mean, if I had made up a story like that, I would have claimed it for myself. So there are all of these remarkable things about Jesus. And that's just on the resurrection. But there are so many other arguments. Now, normally when someone gives a talk, they tell you how many points they're going to make. I am not going to tell you. You can try and count. The point is this. There are so many arguments for the truth of Christianity and that we can be confident in Christ. One of them is simply Christian testimony. Now, did you ever hear the testimony that went like this? We have people here, Philippa, uh, involved in prison ministries. Did you ever hear a testimony that went like this? I was in prison, I'd lived a life of crime, and then I read Richard Dawkins' God Delusion. And I realised there was no God, and it turned my life round, and I turned away from crime, and I decided I was going to walk a straight path. No? Did you never hear a story like that? But you actually hear many, many stories about people meeting Christ and their life being changed. There was a prison in Medellin, in Colombia, where the, the, the crime just dropped a huge amount. It was one of the most violent prisons in the world, and through the power of the gospel, lives were changed. So there's the power of testimony, that, 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 that people can see the power of change in their lives. Now, we do know that other people can experience changes in their lives, but they're not of that order. Sometimes words can persuade people. The communists at a certain stage were very persuasive. They managed to persuade many ordinary people to rise up and impose communism. Powerful orators could try and persuade people. But what that doesn't do 
is change people on the inside, fundamentally in their nature. Or another argument could be answered prayer. We've uh, seen so many different um, answers to prayer, many of us as Christians in our lives. Now, some skeptics say, but if you do blind prayer experiments, you know how it works? You've got a control group that doesn't pray, and you've got a, 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 a control group that does pray, and they pray for different things, and, and you find that there's no difference between the two. That's the great prayer experiment. It even managed to make it somehow into a scientific journal. Uh, but the point is, prayer is to a person. And, and so persons don't play around with games like that. But we have seen so many answers to prayer on uh, teams. Then we think about how God leads us through life. I can experience, uh, talk about personally how God has led me through life. And I look back at the, the path that I've gone, and I would never have thought I'd come that path. And, and, and I can see God's hand on my life. Or as someone said just a bit earlier, how they'd seen how God was planning the details of that week they were doing a a, a beach mission and how God was seeing to all of those details. We can also bring in the argument from prophecy. I've already alluded to that. But there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament which seem to be fulfilled in Christ. Now goes the sceptical response. Of course, because people wrote the New Testament afterwards to fit with what the Old Testament already said. And they made up the picture of Jesus so it looked like what was in the Old Testament. Well, at first that argument can seem plausible, but there you come against a few problems. Let's take the idea of where Jesus was born. Now, it says in Matthew and in Luke, and implies in John, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Ah, say the sceptics. That's because those writers had read Micah which says that a future leader is going to be born in Bethlehem. So they made the story up and had him born in Bethlehem in order to fit with the prophecy. Well, it sounds good. But then you start asking a question. Okay, so when did they make the story up? You see, there's a problem. And that is that Christianity spreads so far and fast, even according to secular records, that if you start making that sort of story up 30, 40, 50 years after Christianity spread, you know you've got a problem? Because Christian, Christians are all around the Mediterranean. And if you're going to say, you know that person you've been suffering for and living uh, hard for, and it's been, you know, many people have been dying for the Christian faith. You know, we were saying they were born in, uh, was it Nazareth or Jerusalem? Actually, we've changed the story. It's, it's, it's Bethlehem now. And all the Christians say, yeah, sure, I'll die for that. You know, how are you going to get people to accept that innovation to the message? Paul had difficulty persuading churches to come on board that he had founded, you know, to, 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 you see? So, then you think about the early period. Well, the problem is there, there are even family members of our Lord. Half-brothers, I believe, someone like, like James, who's mentioned uh, in, in a, a, a historian, Josephus, dying for his religious beliefs, put to death by the Jews in the year 62. Well, if he's around for the first... 30 or so years of Christianity spreading. Surely he knew where where his brother was born. I'm a little brother. You may be able to tell. But the point is, I think I know where my elder brothers were born. Why? Because we've been talking about it right, you know, since the year dot. So if there were going to be stories changed, when would you change them? You can't change them early on because there are people really close to the events for whom it matters who are prepared to die for it. 
and you can't change later on because Christianity spread so far and so fast. Now, of course, prophecy can't be so specific as to say, at this exact hour, someone's going to do this, and, you know, there's a man, Judas, going to be born, and he's going to betray Jesus and so on, because otherwise people might not call their son Judas. It sort of, like, starts interfering with history. But what you can see is, is prophecy is written in such a way that when it comes to pass, you really can say, wow, God was in control of it all right from the beginning. Then we can look at other aspects of what shows us the Bible to be so true. One of them is the lack of bias. I mean, how many national literatures do you know that say as much negative about the people and group from which they originate as the national literature of Israel? By which I mean the Old Testament. I mean, can you think, what does the great Egyptian literature tell you? Well, you know, you go to Egyptian monuments, do you want to know how to read Egyptian? You look at the monument, it's a picture of Ramses, it says, Ramses is great, Ramses is really cool, Ramses really did big things. Okay? You look at a monument of Amenhotep, it will say, Amenhotep's really great, Amenhotep's really cool, Amenhotep did really good things. That's what, that's what they say. They're all boasting. When I read the book of Two Kings, and it tells me about how king after king after king was wicked, do you know what I know? The book of Two Kings was not sponsored as royal propaganda. Right? So I know that, you know, Ramses taxed the people or made them work to put up his royal propaganda. It's pretty obvious. But that's not who wrote the Bible. When you look at the Gospels, I mean, think how badly the disciples come out. Every single one of them abandons Jesus at the key point when they should have been faithful. Well, if you know, if I wanted to write propaganda to start a religion, I wouldn't do that. So we can see just the signs of truthfulness inside the text. Then we can look at how the Old Testament has been shown to be um, true archaeologically. Now, archaeology only began about 200 years ago. Napoleon Bonaparte took experts round in his army with him. And they also invented pencils and things like that. And, and, they, you know, and, and they dug things out of Egypt. Before then, people hadn't systematically dug things out of the ground. Now think about this. Let's get an old family Bible in one of our houses that might be 250 years old. Okay? Anyone got a Bible that old? Great. Well, what you find is a Bible about 250 years old is quite likely to have dates running along the top. Right? That have been put in about 300 years ago. The point is that they were put in before archaeology began. And they will give you the dates of when different kings were kings of Assyria. You can look at the date they give for Tiglath-Pileser. Isn't that a great name? You can call your dog that. But, but the point is, you look up the date that they would have for that, and it's the year 728 BC, worked out on the basis of, of, of mo- mostly of stuff in the Bible and a bit from elsewhere. But the amazing thing is, archaeology begins 200 years ago. People dig up the ancient Assyrian monuments... They then decipher them, which someone, of course, 250 years ago couldn't do. They then see, in the correct order, the five Assyrian kings mentioned in the Old Testament in exactly that order. And guess what? Now we think that Tiglath-Pileser might have been 727, not 728. Um, uh, now, think about this. The Bibles that were printed, they were done that we have in England from, you know, 400 years ago, they were done on the basis of manuscripts that maybe went back to about the year 1100 AD. Sorry, a bit of numbers. You have to think, okay? I know it's late and you're 
travelled a long way. But the point is this, they are correctly recording information from 1800 years prior to those manuscripts. And now we've got earlier manuscripts. But the point is this, the people made the calculations, they trusted what, got, what had been handed down to them in the copies, and they find reliable information for 1800 years prior to the earliest copy they have. And now we've got earlier copies. In other words, the trust that people have put in God's word has been absolutely vindicated. If I lost you on some of that, don't worry. Next one's simpler. Um, There are signs in the Bible of just how things fit beautifully together in the sort of way that things do when people report true things. One of my jobs in a previous existence was um, charging students who committed plagiarism. I used to set the plagiarism hearings at 9am so they didn't sleep too much the night before and they'd always come in very smartly dressed and they would tell you the story about why this bit of work happened by sheer chance to end up looking similar to that bit of work or some other very implausible uh, stories. And what you found is sometimes there was an innocent person. Uh, There was uh, one time someone actually had their work stolen and copied. And what you find is there are hallmarks of truth in the way they tell their story. Things that are just too subtle for them to know about that really do fit together. You find that sort of thing in the Bible. Let me give you an example. In the book of Genesis, Abraham has a son really late on when he's age 100. He has Isaac. A little bit later, Abraham sends his servant off to find a wife for Isaac and uh, the man goes off and finds Rebekah. Now, Rebekah's actually related to Isaac. Do you know how she's related? She's related as his first cousin once removed, one generation lower. So his grandfather was her great-grandfather. Now, just think about that. It never comments on that. It just sort of, when you work out the genealogy, that's where it is. But of course, that's what, exactly what would happen if someone were really born late in life. You find that that's where they would fit in the genealogy. You find other subtle agreements. In the Gospels, it's usually the Pharisees who are uh, resisting Jesus. Look at the book of Acts. It's usually the Sadducees. But then you remember when you read that bit in the Gospels about how the Sadducees really don't like the thing about the resurrection. And then you suddenly see how it fits together. There are so many different things like that. Or we could look at the way the Gospels have features of truth that we can compare with other texts. You know, some people say, what about apocryphal Gospels? Well, I decided to do an experiment and just see how much of geography apocryphal Gospels knew looked at 16, or I actually got someone else to do the work, at 16 early apocryphal Gospels. Do you know how many correctly located towns they managed to get from uh, the land of the Bible? There was only really one that came through, and that was Jerusalem. One of them happened to mention Nazareth, but thought it was Jesus' middle name. Um, You know, when I read the Gospels, I read about where the land goes up and down, about Bethphage, about Bethany, about all these sort of different villages... If I were living in a far-off land making up stories, I wouldn't be able to know about those because I couldn't go into a bookshop and read about places like Bethany and Bethphage because they weren't on the list of places you need to visit before you die, you know, and so on. And you find, as another feature, you can, you can do this at home. You can go, get an electronic copy of the four Gospels, get all of the capitalised words, strip out everything that's a personal name and find everything that's a place name. And the amazing thing is, there are basically, in all four Gospels, five place names per thousand words. 
Now, I know you came out tonight to find out about that, didn't you? Uh, what's the significance of that? Simply this, that, that four Gospels all have the same proportion of geographical names. And yet the four Gospels are very different. They clearly weren't written by one and the same person. They've got very different styles and so on. What can we say about that? What we can say this is that looks to me like a natural pattern, not an artificial pattern. Because it's, there's no way in those days when people didn't, couldn't count words easily and they didn't even have separation between words in the manuscripts a lot of the time, that you can go through counting words and place names. It's just impossible. And yet they have the same proportion. If someone were putting in geographical names in order to make their story look authentic, one would put in too many, one would put in too few. Because when you do something artificial, you produce different amounts. But if someone's just like naturally recording places when it's relevant, not trying too hard, not trying to prove a point, then you get the sort of pattern we get in the Gospels. Another feature in the Gospels that we really have reported exactly the way people spoke. How is Jesus talked about in the Gospels? Well, you know, the main name for Jesus in the Gospels is Jesus. Very rarely Jesus Christ. That's what a lot of the time people talked about Jesus uh, a little bit later on or, or Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Gospels, it's mainly talk about Jesus. But how does Jesus talk about himself? Well, he talks about himself as the son of man, which is not a title that later Christians use, really. So... The way he speaks is different from the way they speak, if you see what I mean. He talks in parables. Later Christians don't talk about in parables. If I were making up things for Jesus to say, I would make him comment on what on earth we should do with Gentiles in the church, how to run a church service, and so on. All the things that, you know, Christians might have wanted to know early on. But he doesn't talk about that. He talks differently from the way they talk. But the way the Gospels talk about Jesus is different from the way the characters in the Gospels talk about Jesus. You search and look for Jesus in quotation marks in the Gospels whenever you've got a character speaking and you'll find with just a couple of exceptions that they always don't just have the word Jesus. They have Jesus, teacher, Jesus, son of David, Jesus plus something extra because Jesus was a really common name at the time, which meant if you just said Jesus is coming down the street, the question would have been, which Jesus are we talking about? And that's why when you see characters in the gospel speaking to each other, they say Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Is, you know, that, they actually explain who it is. The, the, the servant girl comes up to Peter and says, you were with Jesus the Galilean. Another one comes and says he was with Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, every time you talk about Jesus, almost every time, it adds something extra in order to clarify which Jesus. Now, if the gospels were written a lot later... You wouldn't have needed to do that because Jesus had become pretty famous by then, you see. So in other words, we got exactly the way people had to speak early on. But there were more reasons to believe, of course, and I'm going to run out of time because there are too many. We could just look at creation and design. Now, have you ever watched those nature programs about just how remarkable nature is and all these amazing things? How many remarkable things are there about nature? Actually, you run out. It's almost unsurprising to us, that nature is special. It's, it's like something we just know. Uh, it, it's part of, every, everyone realises that the way things work out in nature are just remarkable, and there basically isn't a limit to how many TV programmes you can make about it. The, the, the thing that limits the number of TV programmes you can have is budget. You know, because to get all those really nice shots is going to take a lot of time, a lot of cameramen, all that. 
That's what limits it. But you could just go on throughout nature. Are you going to tell me that will happen by chance? Or we could take it from another angle. Secularists have done a really good job trying to explain how we arose without God. And really, they ha- they've, got a, they've got an explanation for everything. I mean, you know, an explanation of sorts. And, and that's really very clever of them. But you keep on sort of coming across problems. That, but they can explain everything. They can explain, you know, every single impact on the moon. They've got you know, every single crater. They, they've got an explanation for how it came up. You sort of ask questions. When I um, see an eclipse, you know, how does that work? Uh, so the moon comes between me and the sun, and it's like exactly the same size, but just with those beautiful flares going around the edge. Uh, and that's because the, moon, the moon's like 400 times smaller than the sun and is 400 times closer, and that's just chance. All right, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, none of these are going to convince someone who doesn't want to be convinced. There are so many arguments we could say about how, how can you have morality without someone giving the law. But let's think of a really good argument. The gospel. I mean, you don't want to leave that one out of your arguments, do you? I mean, just how the gospel makes sense of everything. There's a school of politicians that basically takes the view that life could be fine if we just shut up, the t- you know, locked up the the terrorists and paedophiles, some really bad people in extortion and corruption, and a few other nasty people, and then everything would be fine. And they're puzzled why it doesn't work. Because they've forgotten about sin. And the fact is, we have this deep moral void inside without Christ. And it's not just that we have no power, we we have this guilt. And what can we do with the guilt? And we can do nothing with the guilt. But God can. He sent his son to take that guilt away, dying on the cross so that our sins could be taken away and we can be forgiven. And there isn't a better thing than being forgiven. We can think of so many more reasons to believe, but I don't have time. So why doesn't everyone believe? Well, it's not to do with the amount of evidence. People watch Jesus on the cross. Luke chapter 23 And as all of the evidence of God's love was in front of them, they demanded more. They said, the fact that you're on the cross is the proof that you're not the Messiah. If you're the king, save yourself. That's the the way we'll know you're king. You see, they've decided what the evidence has to be. The way we'll know you're king is that you save yourself. But what if his sort of kingship is different? His sort of kingship is the I save you and not myself sort of kingship. And that's what it is. And so what we see is often people have already decided what they want to believe and that's why they don't accept the abundant evidence that God gives. You know, you might say, well, why doesn't he give more? There comes a point when asking for more evidence is an insult. My wife says, I've just been for a walk, and I say, can you verify that? I'm insulting her, right? I mean, I've got plenty of evidence of things she does when she says it. I can corroborate many of her actions and things that she says, but I don't feel a need to corroborate everything she says. Sometimes I trust just because she says it, you see? And so what we see is that we need to trust God, but it's not just head confidence. Maybe Judas had that head confidence in Christ. Maybe Satan had head confidence in Christ, but we need to have personal confidence in Christ because it talks in Acts Chapter 1 and verse 5 about how you will be empowered to be witnesses for him. 
I was really helped by what a friend of mine, Kevin Matthews, said. How all the arguments in the world don't necessarily increase your confidence in Christ, but going out and witnessing does. And I just say, we've got so much reason to be confident in Christ, but the confidence isn't so that we just like sit back and feel really confident and great in our ghetto. It's so that we can get out and tell others. And as we go out and, uh, and trust in him, that is when... God will give us the assurance of his presence and his blessing because he has said that, well, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is. That as we go out making disciples of all the nations, Christ said he is with us even to the very end of the age. If we want to be really confident, we need to take confident steps, trusting in him to go out and tell others.